Welcome to the Food Lens Podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Smart, New England food writer and founder of The Not Just Company. And I'm your host, Molly Ford, co-founder of The Food Lens, your online resource for the best restaurants, bars, and events in Boston. On each episode of our podcast, we chat with restaurant industry insiders, digging into business, passion projects, and food trends to see what's shaping the New England restaurant scene. On today's episode, we're chatting with Will Gilson, chef owner of Puritan & Company in Cambridge. Have you heard about our release party on November 7th? Don't miss the chance to hang out with us and also mingle with some of our podcast guests while sipping and snacking the night away at Shoujo in Chinatown. Plus, there will be a sake tasting, a DJ, and a raffle. Oh, and gift bags for everyone. And as a thank you for being our loyal listeners, we are hooking you up with a 50% discount on tickets. That's right, 50%. Find the link to the Eventbrite listing in our show notes and use code TFLPODCAST at checkout. That's TFL Podcast. We hope to see you there. Um, hey, Catherine. Hey, Molly. Good to see you. You too. It's Thursday. Are you in weekend mode yet? Or are you still in the weeds with... For with some reason, it feels like Tuesday still, so I'm not prepared for the weekend. I feel like I have a million things to do in the work week still, but I think I will go to Cape Cod anyway. Yes. <laughs> Figure it out. You should definitely. I mean, sometimes I read a really funny column once in Improper Bostonian, which I think RIP is not with us any longer, about the Cape traffic and how sometimes you don't mean to go to Cape Cod, but you just start driving and the like gravitational pull of the Cape traffic just brings you there and you're like, oh no, I'm on Cape Cod now. I guess I'll stay. Yeah, the traffic is always a challenge and it's always figuring out the perfect time to leave and, you know, Friday afternoon or Friday night. So I'll figure it out. But Lots left to do. Do you have any fun weekend plans? Yeah, I'm actually going to Portsmouth, which we love as evidenced by the Portsmouth Guide, which I really pitched hard to you guys. Thank you for introducing me to Portsmouth. It's such a great food town. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm going to see my in-laws live in York, Maine. So we'll do a little beach time with my son and my husband. And then we might sneak out for a date night because uh, Gary Kim, who was the opening chef at Anju Noodle Bar, which is in the Kittery Guide, he has a new restaurant there. Uh, So I'm really excited to to check that out and eat lots of delicious Asian small plates and, and walk around. I'm excited to waddle around vicariously <laughs> through you. Please put it on your Instagram story because it seems like I'm your your biggest creep. <laughs> I'm always watching your stories, and I think your three year old is the most hilarious three year old I've ever met. Yet I haven't met him in my life. I appreciate that people uh, actually see them. I mean, when you have a lab puppy and a three year old, and you only videotape the non horrific parts, <laughs> then I I could see how it could be appealing. Yeah, you have a lot of content. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you hired me, right? Yes. <laughs> I'm here on the I love your Instagram. Um, anyway, I am excited to welcome Will Gilson to the studio today. He is chef owner at Puritan and Company, somewhere. We love at the Food Lens Yes, for many reasons. Yes. I first had Will's food when he was at Garden at the Cellar in uh, Central Square. And then, of course, he owns Puritan and Company. He And he is such an interesting character because he is, of course, a great chef, but he has such an incredible business mind, and he's always trying something new. So right now he's uh, has this pop-up cafe, Beatrice, which may or may not uh, still be open by the time this podcast runs. He's still talking about that. Um, he had the Beatnik Juice Bar for a while. He you know, Twitter on the delivery service. Uh, so it'll be really interesting to hear, you know, n- him talk not just about food, but all of these different business decisions that he makes. Yeah, I'm so intrigued by him. And, you know, on the side, he's also writing op-ed pieces sometimes. And he also has, you know, social media accounts that he's 
at, very active on. Uh, connects with his people for sure. And so it'll be fun to sit him down face to face and really pick his brain. Yeah. And I can't wait to pick his brain about the new upcoming concept of his. So. Yes, that's true. We almost forgot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, There's lots- so, so much going on, so much to talk about. Thanks for coming in. We're so excited to talk to you about a lot. Um, But first and foremost, Catherine and I were recently talking about your family history in Massachusetts. I think she said that you're like 13th generation Mayflower. You totally totally beat Jeremy Sewell, who we just had in, who's only like, I don't know, a third or fourth generation fisherman from New England. (laughs) So Yeah, so that's really impressive. Well, I mean, I wish that New England royalty, if you would go back the lineage, was as good as British royalty, where like I'd somehow be able to have anything to show for it other than a lot of dead relatives in like the same cemeteries around (laughs) Massachusetts. But uh, I'm a 13th generation Mayflower descendant. Uh, But yeah, I mean, we, uh, my family essentially moved to the town I grew up in, Groton, like the mid 60s. Wow. You seriously have some deep New England roots, a little more so than me coming from San Diego. I feel like Puritan and Company has a lot to do with your background. Can you tell us how it affected that opening? and the menu and everything that goes into your restaurant? You know, when we first opened, we really wanted to kind of be this way of reinventing New England cuisine. I think we'd kind of seen around that time a rebirth in a lot of like the Southern cuisine. People were making it upper echelon. And I thought, well, why can't anybody do that with New England cuisine? Like, And so that's really what we wanted to do. But then we were also trying to find these recipes that like were part of New England cookbooks that we had found from like 17, 18, 19, early 1900s and doing modern interpretations of that. And we really gave it a valiant effort and I think nobody craves peas porridge. Nobody is like, you know, racing to get brown bread, you know, <laughs> and as much as we thought that it was we were doing really great interpretations of it, I just think that we didn't necessarily nail the dismount the way that we thought. So we started to pivot. We wanted to now focus more on the seasons of New England and, you know, sort of my pride of coming from New England. And that was more focused now on getting stuff out of the oceans and getting stuff out of the farms and less on trying to give everybody a history lesson as to the genesis of a, you know, a dish. And I think a lot of people have tried that with different kinds of cuisines of going like new historic and it just doesn't work. Yeah. Well, well, one of the things that I really like about you is you're super a self-aware about this kind of stuff. Um, a lot of like you think about stereotypical ego driven chefs would not jump into our conversation and sort of admit all of that. I'm really curious about how you kind of take that self-awareness and you make these business decisions. I don't know. People embrace this like failure and like you have to fail and you have to drive a business into the ground. And I hate to romanticize that, but it is really important sometimes to know what it feels like to put yourself out there and then lose it all. When I had my first shot of opening a restaurant, Garden at the Cellar, Cambridge, 2007, and I had just come off of graduating from culinary school and uh, working for Anna Sorton for two years, super cocky. And I was like, I can do this. I think that there's a remarkable amount of confidence and idiocy where you just think that you're going to be able to figure it out no matter what. And uh, we made it last for five years there as basically a pop-up that didn't even have a lease. But I had no idea what I was doing. And I racked up debt. I you know, severed relationships with vendors who had stuck their neck out for me and fell into depression and like, left that place, you know, I gave basically the keys to someone else. And then I just kind of walked away. And I think in that process, what I learned was that I couldn't do it alone. I grew up an only child. And uh, my mom even jokes when I was a kid, it was like, let me do it. Let me do it. Let me do it. And it wasn't until we opened Puritan that I realized that I 
needed to find partners who knew exactly what they were doing on the things that I was not good at so that I could focus on being a chef. Right. And there, it, it is a balance, right? Because, I mean, Molly and I both are co-founders of companies. Like, you have to have some level of idiocy. Otherwise, you'll never do it. So it's like, that's sort of part of the necessary painful process, I think, is Absolutely. going through that. I, think and I was then, just telling you outside that I need a little more help here and there because I think I can do it myself, just like you were saying. And you realize, you know, you need your team. I really want to hear about, you know, your other projects because you have Puritan and Company, your restaurant. Since opening that, I mean, you have Puritan Trading Co. offered on Caviar. Yeah. So I'll talk about a fun little pivot with that. I guess we've diversified a lot in the last year and a half. Puritan at year five, every year we were making more money than the year before, and it was our first year that we didn't. And I kind of panicked and scrambled. And I said, we're going to take over my parents' farm and we're going to uh, run that as a wedding venue and we're going to do the dinners out there. And what that did is it allowed us in the summertime to now access a completely different revenue stream and be able to have this place where we could throw weddings. My wife and I got married out there. So we basically just took our wedding and that was the template. And then we started looking at what was happening in the market and these mobile apps for ordering your dinner or your lunch on it were like taking over the market. And we looked at our menu at Puritan and went, no one's going to want to eat this food like at their home. Like this is like a tasting menu restaurant or it's, you know, kind of fine dining. And so we went, well, what if there was no constraints? Like what if we basically had a menu that doesn't exist anywhere else? And so we talked to Caviar and we said, could we please just try this concept out that like it's not our normal menu it's a menu that's just for this and they said sure and from idea to implementation it was three weeks and we basically just came up with a menu and we kept it going for about a year and it was largely predicated on having one employee who was working for us who was doing everything and in about the time that uh, our daughter was born uh, that person decided to move on and I was just sort of watching it strain the kitchen and I just turned it off. And I think that that is one of the things that was interesting about it is that it had really kind of developed this following and it was fun for us as a new way to market. But the best part about it was we didn't invest any money and you can just turn it off. So this whole ghost restaurant thing is kind of new to me and it's kind of a new trend. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? So the idea of a ghost restaurant is there's no address. There's no way for you to actually come to it. It's usually just a room full of kitchen equipment that has cooks in it who are making things that are getting into packages and then delivery drivers can show up and they can pick their stuff up and they can go out the door. And I think that this ghost restaurant template, which, you know, I had seen people in New York and Chicago and London who were getting into this by essentially like doing data farming to figure out what people were searching for in that area and then like getting a shipping container and throwing a kitchen in it and then just now all of a sudden there's a shawarma restaurant that doesn't have an address that is delivering to all these people in like South London and I think that that was the, the fascination with that and I think that we still want to figure out how to incorporate that into it but again we weren't there yet we just had an idea we yeah. thought it would be fun and it was great so now what we've decided to do is turn it back on again and it's just puritan and i think what we realized in that was that we we were slowly putting puritan dishes on to caviar and people were buying like pork chops to like get sent to their house they were buying like our pasta dishes they were buying all the stuff that i thought that nobody wanted i think i think meal delivery kind of caught up with you because you see you've seen like with caviar and the expansion yeah. that people are willing to kind of invest in those they're maybe not cooking at home or you know they want something 
a little more elegant or restaurant-worthy at home. Guys, I have some exciting news for you. Our season one sponsor, Weinster, is giving away a private at-home wine experience in December. The VP of Wine, who is also a certified sommelier, will come to your house, with a bunch of wine, of course, to lead your group through a tasting. These experiences are generally around two hours for up to 12 people and is valued at around $700. To enter the giveaway, all you have to do is tell us your favorite part of this episode by leaving a comment on the Food Lens Instagram post. And if you win, feel free to invite me so I can taste some wine with you and your friends. Well, we talked about data a little earlier, but I really want to dive more into that subject in general. I've been learning so much about data at the Food Lens, and it really impacts the decisions we make, you know, generating our content. So I want you to tell me what kind of platforms are you using to collect data about your guests and how is it impacting your own business decisions? So much to the chagrin of how much it costs, uh, OpenTable, but OpenTable is a platform that we cannot not use at Puritan. We use OpenTable and one of the reasons that we did that was because their reach is the best and their reach for the type of clientele that we're looking for there helps capture them. So now we've got people who are a certain demographic, they're a certain income level, they're the ease of being able to book, to be able to incentivize them with points. You know, all of these things really helped us create a better way to reach them. And we watched other chefs that we spoke to who moved from OpenTable to a different platform lose 30% of their revenue stream like in two weeks. Something we just wouldn't even think about as a consumer, you right. know? Right, exactly. And and it's almost as simple as like scrolling down, how highly are you rated on OpenTable? And somebody's flying in from Kansas City and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm looking for New England and this has got 4.6 stars. Yeah, boop. They got a reservation right now and they're done. And it was that kind of stuff that we realized we would lose more money than we were spending. There are so many different stigmas that people who dine out don't realize what it costs to operate a restaurant. One is that um, every single reservation that comes through OpenTable costs me at least a dollar. Valet is the other one. People think that they're giving the restaurant 20 bucks or 10 bucks or whatever it is when they park their car. Nope, we pay a valet company and then they take that money. I could go on and on and on. But to, to get back to what we were talking about with you know using software and technology, we use uh, Venga, which has just been bought by OpenTable as well. Um, we use uh, Avero. We've used, you know, just internally we use Slack. But the, the plugins that we've had into our kind of reservation management system allows us to see when the guests were last in with us, how many times they've dined with us, how much their average spend is when they're with us, if they've left reviews before on the restaurant. Getting creepy, Will. It's I know. a little bit creepy over Every there. single, <laughs> I, I, you know, so like there's this digital footprint. When you come into my restaurant, I know who you are when you're going to be there and what your experiences have been with us. I can also then track the individual servers and I can say they were served by this person, you know, they spent this much money, they were there for this amount of time, and I can see if they've been in multiple times and they've had different experiences with different servers, then I can start to see trends. And I think that that's the thing that really helps you. I, I mean, if you told me seven years ago when we started Puritan that data and analytics were going to be like a big part of my week, I'd be like, then I quit, you know, <laughs> but it is, it's, it's retention. And I think that the thing that's so funny now is I don't know most people who dine in my restaurant. 
when uh, every place that I've ever run before, I could look out into the dining room and be like, that's this person. Uh, they work here. Uh, that's this person. They've been coming to this place for years. Like I used to be able to do that. I walk into the dining room now, chef coat, run a dish to someone's table, put down, how is everything? They're like, great. Can I get another martini? Like, mm-hmm. you have no idea who I am. And, that, and- that was my next question. And that feels like I waited tables all through graduate school, worked as a food writer for a long time. Like, that makes me really sad, a piece of that. And I'm curious, do you still have regulars that come sit at the bar? and, Or is it just everybody wants to be at the hot new spot and check it out and move on? Like, there's cool things about that. And as a business owner, I'm fascinated. But there's also something about, like, the romance of restaurants. When you say that, that just makes you really sad. Yeah, and, and I think that you embrace the ones that you can hold on to. And you really make sure that you take good care of them. But if your entire business model is predicated on just trying to have those people in there, you'll fail. It makes me feel like I've succeeded in business when I don't know anyone in the dining room. That's not what I planned. You know, like I expected it being like people that I had relationships with, people I knew coming there for, you know, anniversaries and birthdays and, you know, celebrations. But the biggest thing that has made us successful has been private dining at Puritan. Year three, we took a space that we had next door that we were paying rent on that was just storage, and we decided to build a private dining room. And I don't think any one thing has helped us remain where we are and remain successful. From that, we have people who come in who now have dinner as like a couple because they were the admin for a company in Kendall Square who said, oh, let's find a place to do dinner. And then they booked that and they had a blast and then they come in and then we take care of the admin. I actually love your private event space. I haven't had an event in my life yet that I need to host. But when I do, it'll be there. It's on the list. Have you ever seen it? No. Oh, it's so charming. It's intimate. Yeah, I love it. So maybe my next birthday you could. Okay, I'll take a note. I want it. I'll take a note, Molly. (laughs) I know a guy you can talk to. (laughs) Well, I mean, it sounds like you are always learning new things and pushing yourself and your team. And I'm curious as to how all of these experiences thus far have, you know, affected your next move. You have another new concept on the horizon. Yes, we almost we almost forgot. I know. There's Cambridge so much Crossing, to talk about. right? We've been working on a restaurant project uh, with the developers of Cambridge Crossing for about three years now. And it started off with just casual conversations of maybe me being a culinary consultant and sort of helping, like, you know, tell them what the area might be. And then it just turned into, why don't you open a restaurant here? And what we started looking at is that, you know, Cambridge Crossing is this 43-acre parcel in East Cambridge, kind of right by Leachmere. It touches Boston, Somerville, Charlestown, uh, Cambridge. And in that space, there's already like 2,500 units of residential who are like on an island with like really nowhere to go. And these developers have been really kind of pushing this dream. Uh, Divco West, company from California, really, really wanted to make this parcel everything that like different parts of Boston had. So like the fun grabbing retail of like assembly, but with the like tech and office and pharma and bio of like what Kendall had. With this, if you're building a neighborhood, how do you learn from all the different things that Boston has done well in some places and areas where it definitely hasn't? And so I kept on kind of talking to them about this. And finally, they said, well, why don't you open up something? And I said, sure. And they showed me a building that is 
big. <laughs> and I said, well, how would you fill this? And I said, well, there's nothing worse than going into a restaurant that is huge and cavernous and trying to be something for everybody. Like that's Cheesecake Factory. It's like, you can get coffee here. You can get, you know, a burger here. You can get cheesecake here. <laughs> and, and for me, I was like, that's just so done. Every single place that was really hitting it in these new cities that were coming up were hotels. And there's no hotel plan for this parcel in Cambridge Crossing. So I said, well, why don't we build a hotel with no rooms? How do you be something to all the people who live in that neighborhood without them getting sick of it? And so what we decided to do was try to create this restaurant space where you can walk in to a lobby and someone greets you and says, are you dining with us in our cafe, in our restaurant, or in our rooftop bar? And from there, one person could come there three times a week and always get a different experience if they wanted to. That's really interesting. And Cafe Beatrice, your pop-up that I'm assuming was kind of a dress rehearsal for some of the things that you're going to be doing at uh, Let's put it Crossing. this way. I, I think it's irresponsible to run headfirst now, as everything we've talked about in this podcast, to run headfirst without knowing some of the things that you know you'll do wrong. Yeah. Uh, and I think when we were had the opportunity for, for Cafe Beatrice, we wanted to get a dry run of not just what it is like to run a place that's open for breakfast and lunch if we're normally a dinner-focused restaurant, but how do you run two businesses if you've never run two businesses before? I think that that's a mistake that a lot of restaurant people make is that they are like, oh, well, a second restaurant means a second income, means a second profit stream, means all of these <laughs> things. Oh, and then I can take my staff and I can split them between these two places and violate all these labor laws and like, it'll be great. You know, like think of all the efficiencies. And then it gets really hard. And so this was a dry run. And how do you evolve? And, and you know, take a look at this building that, you know, we're going into. If you were to cut it into three sections as to what all three different things are that we're doing in that, well, what if one of them doesn't work? Shut one part down and redo that while everything else continues going. And we can also have one kitchen in the middle that is the belly for all of this and do half of the dining as counter dining. Now you have a place where all of that can be really done with the least amount of people. And this labor market's only getting tighter. There's every restaurant struggling to hire. So you can't just keep opening big, 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 big places and expect them to be staffed with people. You have to figure out a way to solve the problem. And we haven't opened the doors yet, so I'm really hoping everything that I've been blowing my horn about here is going to pay <laughs> off. But um, you can see how how we got there. It sounds really exciting. And even though I said I was sad to think about you not recognizing people in your restaurant, it makes me happy to think about how you're creating something really sustainable that gives you the room to experiment and play. Because what's much sadder than maybe not knowing the same guy at the bar every night is the thought that, you know, great restaurants are, are closing all the time. And, you know, you've spoken a lot about, you know, it's a tough business and it's only getting tougher. We have a really quick rapid fire round of questions. So I'd like you to name your favorite Boston dumpling. Oh, gourmet dumpling house. Dive. Uh, Bitty Early's. Dessert. Uh, anything that Brian Mercury makes. And date spot. Uh, the bar at Bar Mazana. This podcast was produced by Ali Pham. A special thanks to the folks at the PRX Podcast Garage. If you enjoyed what you heard, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts or share the show with friends and family. Your help means so much to us. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show and check out thefoodlens.com for the best restaurants, bars, and events in Boston. <laughs>